0: Hello and welcome back to OT Enchil, all things occupational therapy with me, Kwaku. I really enjoy exploring the identities of people with them, you know, finding out what's really meaningful for them. But what happens if one of the things that you really want and really strive for is not possible? In the episode today, I speak to Alice Hawthorpe about involuntary childlessness and the impact it has on one's identity. I hope you enjoyed this episode just as much as I did. So let's get right into it. Hello Alice, how are you doing today?
1: I'm all the better for speaking to you.
0: Oh fantastic, thank you so much for joining me. You know we came across each other on social media, everyone, everyone seems to meet on social media nowadays but there's a lot of things that I found really interesting about you and all the things that you talk about on your uh, social media but just for everyone to know who you are, can you just tell me a little bit about yourself please?
1: Basically, I'm an occupational therapist, love being an occupational therapist. I think uh, it's been a real kind of love affair with occupational therapy over the years. I trained in 19, well, finished training in 1999, which obviously I was seven when I went to OT school because I'm not that old. (laughs) (laughs) I trained in Liverpool and I work in the University of West of England teaching occupational therapy. Um, I teach on all aspects of the course I like working with everyone I don't specialize in mental health or physical health I work in all the areas because I'm obsessed
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you, you you finished in 1990 or you, you started training in 1999, or you qualified in 99
1: I qualified in 1999 <laughs> and my mum is an OT as well oh okay so literally I was taken into the into the unit uh, in the womb <laughs> I um, was indoctrinated, I was born an OT.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's good to hear, it's always, uh, you know, occupational therapy, we always talk about it and it always seems to be a vocation for people, it's not just like a, yeah. a job that people do, so you, you have to have some a level of passion for, for your job because it's, sometimes it can be a little bit tricky, can't it? So you've been an OT since 99, yeah. What what different areas have you sort of practiced in?
1: Oh, (laughs) lots of different areas. Basically, um, I started in um, a rotation, did physical health, mental health, um, a little bit learning disabilities, then worked in um, acute inpatient, outpatient community. Um, I've worked as a senior one in um, acute mental health services and then I set up my own business so I had to train in therapy company and I worked with education a lot to work with people in the community who had opportunities to improve their quality of occupational engagement so I've run my own business and I've worked in education both as a university but also as lifelong learning. And also, um, I've been involved with the charity going internationally. So I've been really involved with Croatian OTs for, God, probably about 15 years now. And I take students across to Croatia to volunteer. I've taken them to Nepal to volunteer. I do lots of training with the kind of Croatians as well. And then my last post was a uh, clinical specialist OT in mental health services for older people.
0: Wow, so, so I've
1: a, I've really gone all around the place. Yeah,
0: you've covered you've covered a lot of different scopes in occupational therapy. That's that's yeah. fantastic, and then, and
1: I still got my own private business, so I I still dabble, as it were.
0: Wow, no, so you're still you're still got your foot in the clinical work, and yeah. you now you're training even more occupational therapists to to yeah. come out in the to come out the other side. Um, no, <laughs> that's survived. really they survived. <laughs> they survived. No, that's really that's really good to hear. I suppose it, especially when you're in education. You know, having uh, not saying that people without much experience can't teach but having that rounded experience you can able to advise on dip, loads of different aspects of yeah. you know the real real life occupational therapy sometimes isn't it
1: i hope so i hope so the students are very nice they're very kind to us
0: <laughs> oh no that's good that's good to hear um setting up your own business why why did you why did you do that
1: basically when i worked in uh, my senior one post with, in mental health services, it was a brand new hospital, it was brand new service and having set up lots of things like, um, well, I think we were the first place in Wales to have a, um, a situation where people were admitted to hospital, sometimes on a section, and they could actually do courses whilst they are inpatients and they started to build up qualifications, open college network points towards qualifications, and it meant they had European funding then to continue their education when they left and we set up kind of lots of groups that spanned in the inpatient unit in the day hospital and also in the community and because of all those different groups basically I got poached (laughs) and I thought it'd be nice to work in a a setting where people aren't labelled So you don't have to come into the system to get this therapy. So there's no kind of a stigma associated. Um, So we started working with different charities and setting up things in the community. And then to supplement the the amount of hours that was available, um, I just had a load of publicity kind of unexpectedly for the work I did in humor therapy. And people wanted to be trained in humor therapy. So I started training people. So those two things kind of coincided um, at the same time, mm,
0: basically. Uh, that's, that's really good. Cool. Really, one of the things that I, I always hear from people is everyone's really quite. Some people are really quite scared to take that leap into, like, private practice as 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 well as working. And then it's just because it's like either conflict of interest or just have, don't have the uh, experience to be able to set up your own private practice so that's well well done for doing that you've been doing that for a while you you said
1: yeah i mean to be honest this started off a little bit um of a self-indulgence okay You know, so I was teaching humour therapy, so I was having a really good time. <laughs> An excellent time working with amazing different people in different places, you know, real kind of public health work. And whatever I earned basically afforded me the ability to do different conferences, different training, to go internationally and work with amazing people in amazing places. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was very self indulgent. And yeah. I was getting to play. <laughs>
0: oh yeah that's, that's uh, we, you know the play never stops right play never stops from when you're a child so Absolutely. any opportunity to play when you're an adult as well as earn some money as well as do all the other things that you want to do is it sounds like a fantastic yeah um, like mary
1: poppins effect mary,
0: <laughs> mary poppins effect all right fantastic uh, nice to hear that well one of the things we well we got many things we can talk about today but one of the things we wanted to uh, focus on um, today's episode was about involuntary childlessness it's something I, I don't really know much about I've listened to a few podcasts I've read a couple of articles around it from from what I've read and from my understanding of it it's, it's it sounds like it's a forgotten group of yeah. uh, women like an, an invisible set of women in in our society where people don't not not i wouldn't use the word care for them but don't really respect some of the things that they might have gone through so for people that don't really know what that is could you just explain what involuntary childlessness is
1: yeah it can come in different forms so uh, for example my situation is that i have unsuccessfully tried naturally Um, unsuccessfully tried to access IVF for a long period of time um, because lots of restrictions to be able to access it and unsuccessfully been able to adopt. Um, I'm very fortunate that I have a stepson who is an absolute delight Um, but it's a very different role because at any moment his mum could just take him out of our lives and she has done so it's it's a very unstable Um, kind of parenting role and um, it's really difficult kind of raising somebody else's child with you know so much love but actually you have no control so you know I can't kind of you know I can get his hair cut and things but it's it's not that I can, you know, protect him when difficult things happen in the same way you would be able to as a parent because I can't, you know, easily take him to healthcare. I can't easily liaise with his school. You know, there's lots of things like that that, that that kind of get in the way. So people either haven't been able to get pregnant with help um, or support, they haven't been able to adopt. Adoption figures are really low for people being able to successfully get through adoption. So I think it's only about one in eight adopting couples are successful. Wow. And also it's it's a group of people, you know, male and female, non-binary, you know, same sex relationships, you know, a whole group of people who for some reason maybe haven't they haven't met the right person or they haven't been in the right place in their life that haven't been able to have children when they wanted them. And that's the big thing, you know, child wish that they wish to have children and they they haven't been able to for some reason.
0: Mm. Yeah, when I think about it now, it's like there's a lot more to it than just saying someone doesn't have a child because you don't, you might not understand why they don't have a child. Uh, But I want to go back to like talk about women specifically, because I suppose if a a man is not able to have a, a child. For, for any reason uh, that's still a very similar situation but women are the child bearers they can, you carry carry, yeah. uh, carry the, the child as well but let's say from the age of uh, puberty 18 and then all throughout your 20s and mid 30s when your facility is probably the most highest when you can't conceive what kind of effects would that have on, a, on the, the role of a woman or the identity know. of a woman
1: I, I did my master's dissertation on this and I'm so glad I did because it, it explained a lot of my situation in my life. Um, I've been trying since I've been about 26, 27 and, and it's, it's everything. It's, it's literally not having, going, like I go into my mum's house and there's not a single photo of my children, and all over her house is pictures of my sister's children. So it, you even just walking into a room, you feel like a ghost who doesn't exist, because that there is, there's no, there's photos. Literally, there's a whole wall of photos of my sister's children, and there's nothing of me. Um, and even to the point of you know having conversations with people people very earnestly particularly females will have conversations about parenting and you're left on the peripheral so even just trying to socialize parenting is part of people's identity it's part of the daily speech so even when you're with people you feel very lonely and left out you you know even just going to supermarkets I would avoid going at certain times because there'd be more children and because there's such a sense a stranger danger you know you look at a child and smile and you haven't got children with you yourself they want to know why (laughs) you know And, and understandably you know, people are protecting their children. So even in the workplace, in the workplace, there's all sorts of triggers around children. Um, People get different holidays, people get different leeway. You know, um, I remember being in a very public meeting um, and my manager said, all the mummies and daddies might want to go home now to, you know, do the school run. And it's just this kind of feeling of not being part of society. You you know, we have a very child-centric society i've been told in in kind of unpleasant ways that my opinion isn't wanted because i haven't had children so if i made a comment on uh, you know a child's welfare then i would be well you know it's different when you're a mother you'd understand i mean even david cameron talking about issues as a father as a father you know it's like no as a human being I feel bad when I see a, an injured child. I feel bad wh- when I see any kind of atrocity done.
0: Mm.
1: Not as a father, and just because you've had that role, uh, you know, and I hear all the time as a mother, it, it's actually as a human being, I feel for other human beings. Um, and, and it's almost like a disentitlement to feelings, to belonging, to, you know, a, 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 and also because parents schedule their activities around their children and other parents schedule the children around the the, the children around activities you know they there were there was a huge period of time where all my friends got pregnant and they all spent time with their you know friends who had children and i didn't have any scheduling Mm. opportunity so i didn't have a ticket to the party Mm. and nobody everyone thinks well You wouldn't want to come to a kids' party. You wouldn't want to go see kids doing gym. And it's like, actually, I'd love to. I'd really like to be invited to their birthday party. And because parents sometimes see it as a chore or because it's so everyday, they don't realise that if you're not being invited to these things, you're not being invited to events, to to things, you're suddenly not included in people's lives because they're so busy
0: yeah yeah no, that's you, right. thanks for that you give a real sense of some of the, the difficulty. Like, it has a massive impact on someone's identity right we talk yeah. about in occupational therapy you know we talk about identity and roles and and values people attach to different things and, and you know like you talk about if someone's a parent they attach the uh, being a parent to their role and their values and the one they instill to their children but actually if you're not able to join those things but you still hold strong values in terms of your friendships and everything like that and that's removed because you know people have had children and they don't want to involve you that has a massive role on your own self-esteem right
1: yeah and it's also this kind of and that's what the research showed as well that there's this kind of isolation even when when you're with your, your your peers and your friends and things and family but also that there is this kind of sense that you haven't grown up properly, that actually you haven't had this responsibility. So people will quite often speak to me, I feel like I'm a younger person. Okay. Like that there'll be assumptions made on, you know, people will state the obvious <laughs> it's like, yeah, I haven't had kids, but I have a brain. <laughs> you know, you know, that I have some sort of and this Quite often, it's seen as an indulgence as well when people choose not to have children. You know that there's a stigma attached to not wanting children, so you're perceived as being more money orientated, more selfish, um, and and things like that. And and also, people always assume if they are having difficulty with a parent parenting, that you have a very luxurious lifestyle, okay. that you've got all this time to just go on holidays. And what they don't seem to realise is if you want your time to be filled with raising a child, actually that time is painful. Mm. So yeah, they can be a luxury of time, not always, Mm. but also that is a luxury of time whereby, I mean, 90% of people who are involuntary childless have depression. Um, Over 40% have suicidal ideas. That's a huge amount of the population that are having suicidal ideas, yeah. and then people are going, "Cool, look at you, lucky! What are you going to do this weekend? Which yacht are you going to use this weekend? Because you're not paying out for children, you know." Yeah,
0: yes. and- there's a lot. There's a lot. You give you you you, you give a sense of, and I'm, I'm I'm just trying to think about how time use. We talk about time use, yeah. um, and the pressures on 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 everyone but the pressure specifically on women in society of wh- when you have a child like you just talked when you have a child everything just revolves around <laughs> your children right everything just revolves around your children apart from that what what kind of of a stigma is attached to women who don't have children or can't have children or choose not to have children
1: that if you choose not to you there's kind of negative perceptions about your kind of humanity that you wouldn't want to do this thing which is you you know the whole way through your you, your kind of upbringing you're socialized that you're going to have a family that you want a family you know dolls you've trained your whole life to nurture and then you, you know even the way people talk i spoke to a student today and, and he said oh we're we're expecting our first baby and there's almost like an almost you know and then we'll have our other one or other however many and actually when you've done I've probably done about God. I must have done at least two hundred pregnancy tests, you know. And if you just think it's going to happen and it just doesn't, and I mean, I I mean, I fund the the pregnancy test makers nationally because <laughs> the other thing is, it dictates your life in in such a big way. Sorry, I've gone off the, off the question, but it's just something just came to me that you can't ever do even just things other people can do because you're always hoping for maternity leave or you're always planning for adoption leave like for example I've been in my job for 12 years and don't get me wrong it's not because I want to run from that job I I haven't even been able to look at other jobs because I've been trying for 12 years to either have a baby or to adopt Mm. and you don't get maternity leave or adoption leave unless you've been in the workplace for so long so it's even just there isn't a part of your life which which isn't impacted and and the stigma going back to the stigma is that I don't want to you know kind of chastise people for for the way they they haven't maybe understood my situation but I've had things like say um, an OT said to me oh it's okay you'll know love when you have children and that kind of you know as a human being you wouldn't fully understand love until you have a child so my existence i'm never going to understand love according to their world perspective yeah it, and that's that was a really thing and, and also you have to cope with people very well meaning people do very bizarre things <laughs> like you know just start talking so intimately about your your lady parts
0: <laughs> oh really and
1: yeah it, you know, have you tried putting your legs up on the wall? Have you tried this? You need to take this. It, you know, I wrote a poem about, that. the one about, you know, what you need to do is relax. It's like, if I haven't relaxed at some point in the last, you know, 17 years, <laughs> then it's going to be a bit worrying. I'd be very tense right now. You know, but people can be very intrusive. People can make assumptions. People can and um, point out how lucky you are when you're really not lucky if you want them.
0: Yeah, so is that some some something alongside those unsolicited advice for starters when you when you might be going through that whatever you're going through without having a child? Is I was thinking about also um that it could does it come across as a sense of loss when you when you find out the the day you find out that you actually really can't have children no matter how much you've tried how does one process that
1: they call it the hopelessness loop okay and basically you get stuck in a loop of hope so you you hope for ivf you hope for natural you hope for and then it's hope despair so you find out you're not pregnant you can't get the IVF you get rejected from the adoption system whatever it is and then you do repair and then basically you go back to a couple of key relationships and all yourself and try to do lifestyle redesign and then something will happen where hope will start again for example I do sea swimming and I read it increased fertility so I had two three months of Buying more pregnancy tests, getting a bit excited, um, started taking the folic acid again, you know, and it hasn't happened. But when I did keto, keto diet, they said, "Oh, keto babies! Everyone has keto babies." So it's a bit like, "Oh, it's going to happen! It's going to happen! It's going to happen!" And and also, it's it's the loss of every month when you get your time of the month, um, particularly if you're a couple of days late, that's torture. And then also, you know, I have had brief pregnancies. So, you know, I, I tend to have a couple of days of having a positive test and get very, very excited, but try not to be excited because you're not allowed to be excited. And you just end up just trying not to move. <laughs> you know, it's like, nobody touch me. <laughs> I might, I might. Ah! And, and then I literally said to Dill the last time, my partner, I said about, I said, it's our turn, it's our turn, it's our turn. And I just kept saying, it's our turn, it's finally our turn. And it wasn't again. So it's this kind of hope. And then you get a real boof, a a kind of drop. And then you try to repair things and you're trying to make life as as happy and pleasant and and purposeful uh, as you can.
0: So you mentioned this, it's a hopelessness loop. That's a really, really um, interesting concept, is it? So is, is, is that similar to like a griefing um, loop or a grief cycle? Yeah. Okay, okay. And, yeah.
1: uh, it's a kind of trauma loop. Okay. And um, what you find is people get to the point where they can't stand hope. So, for example, somebody approached me quite recently and um, wanted to donate their eggs to me. Um, and solicited <laughs> again, people being kind, but <laughs> and it's it's that I don't want hope. I don't want hope anymore. It's too painful. Um, and what you find in the research is that once people finally give up, or finally, you know, get that no to the adoption or what have you, it tends to take two years to actually process that grief. Um, so people, like, interesting, I think it's interesting that when people go for adoption, their depression increases. Okay. And it's that you suddenly, I mean, going through adoption was was awful, absolutely awful. It's the worst experience, worse than going, trying to get IVF, worse than anything, and it, really insulting. Some of the things that were said to me, and I know to other people, have had similar experiences where you know, I was told that I needed to lose weight because I wouldn't be a good role model at my weight. Um, I was told I might not be able to go on the course because of my weight. They described me in their notes as Alice is overweight. That was the first description. So the first line about me, apart from my address, is Alice is overweight. And it's just your, everything you do is questioned with an Inch of your life. So it's really kind of pulling apart everything you do. I mean, for my steps, and I do lots of spontaneous play activities, specializing in humor therapy. Mm. And she turned to my partner and I gave a couple of examples of really, really nice, caring events, but you know, a little bit more off the wall because I'm imaginative. She turned to my partner and she said, So, how long are you going to cope with Alice's spontaneousness? And it's it's kind of like what yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what
0: what. So it's really pulling at someone's like getting going back to the the, the identity and your self worth and your self esteem. Yeah. All these things that we as occupational therapists like we try to uphold when when we're trying to work with um, the people that we work with. Is that all? People saying those kind of things yeah. pulls that apart. Yeah,
1: that not only are you not able to show you can be a mother, but you're being told that you're not going to be a good mother. And also, I was already raising my stepson, so I think I was actually being quite a good mother, particularly compared to how I feel other people in this room of lives parented, you know, because you have your opinions, don't you?
0: Oh, of course. Of course everyone (laughs) has their opinions, yeah.
1: And there's also this kind of interesting that there's about 600,000 people in the UK who would put themselves forward for adoption, if the process wasn't so awful. And I think what they ought to do is try and build people up and where they see there might be a weakness, you know, because one of the things which was held against me was the fact that I've been depressed because I can't have children. They're like, "Um, but that's most of your demographic. (laughs) Can't have children. And adoption itself has been shown to bring depression. And what they do is they kind of... Well, my experience, my friend's experience is that basically they they pull you apart and break you down. And it's really, really traumatic. And then they might give you a traumatised child with little support. So they should be built. I think they should be. They've got a real opportunity to go in, build people up, do really great work and get people really nice and secure. And then work with them with the traumatized child mm. because a lot of adoption you know is unsuccessful no. and I can see why I was I had to have time off work when I finished because I was just utterly demoralized and felt like a complete failure and had my whole dreams of being a parent kind of taken away and smashed mm. and and you know they say things like that they they say the children that are available, they give you all these lovely stories. So, you know, there's an eight-month child who was available with Down syndrome and that there'd be long time on the, the waiting list because nobody would adopt a child with Down syndrome in, in, in the area. And I turned to my partner and I was like, oh, oh Down syndrome! give me that baby. I love that baby. You know, and I've worked in orphanages and, you know, internationally, I've got paediatric qualifications and all they can say is Alice is overweight. And it's also the public humiliation because they actually go to your ex-partners, they go to your workplace, they interview everyone, you you know, and his ex-partner put a horrible reference in for us. And it's like, yeah, but I've raised your son for five years and and you've had very little contact, you know, once a week, that's Mm. twice a week, that's little contact. But yeah, she can say whether I'm allowed to be a parent or not. And, you know, your ex-partners are certainly not, you know, unbiased. Well. You know, if you haven't left on a nice note, like she and my my partner had, you know.
0: Yeah, so that also adds to that, again, chipping away at someone's identity. And again, this is yeah. it has a real impact on your mental health, right? And uh, we talked about up to 90% of yeah. um, those that can't have children um, experience um, a level of depression. At some point and,
1: and also it breaks up relationships you know I, I tried not just with my partner uh, but I tried previously in previous relationships and it, it puts a strain on the relationship and you know when you put on dating profiles you have to say whether you want children or not and it's really far-reaching and complicated mm. I think
0: um, so what is thinking way is all these things about how people feel or might feel because they can't have children. At some point, we're going to be probably working with um, women who can't have children as occupational yeah. therapists in different different settings. What could an um, occupational therapist specifically help with or healthcare professionals specifically help with when we encounter those that can't have children um, for, in, for all the different reasons that you've you've yeah. described?
1: I think there's, there's quite a lot that can be done. I think th- there's a bit of a taboo about speaking about it. So I think people need to be able to give opportunities, but also in a tactful way, not in a, you know, kind of sledgehammer. So why haven't you had kids? You know, it's a, you know, what, what roles would you have liked in your life? What would you have liked to achieve in your life? Opening up questions, you know, was there anything that you haven't, any goals you haven't reached yet? Talking about who's in your family brings up opportunities for people to raise you know actually I haven't been able to have children how do you feel about that because some people are very happy without children and don't want them which is their choice as well and and quite often I find that you know there's reasons why people don't want children sometimes they you know they've had difficult parenting and they don't want to be in that position to, to be a parent themselves but I think It's about having opportunities to open up, not being like a sledgehammer, but also validating. Some professionals seem to think that, you know, everything is on them to solve. And sometimes it's not solving, it's just hearing it. I spoke to a counsellor when I was, um, after the adoption failed and it was already after everything else had failed. So it was just really heavy. And she said to me, well, we like to take a problem solving approach so you know how can you solve this problem i was like (laughs) well you know i came so close to say sometimes i see children in supermarkets and they're not that closely supervised i think if i was quick enough i might be able to snatch one you know and i just wanted to be so facetious But it's like, you know, you can't ask somebody to solve a problem where there's no solution. You know, if I haven't been able to have them naturally, if I haven't had, you know, I've tried all the quirks that were recommended. You know, I put my legs up in positions. I put pillows under hips, you know, dance naked in front of the moon. I haven't done that. Um, but all the things that are recommended, you, you know, there isn't going to be a solution. And it's it's sometimes, you know, people come back and, and also they think you're endlessly wealthy, you know, if you don't have kids, and I've had dry run and you know debt and things, everyone lives to their means, and actually, you don't know ten years beforehand that you're suddenly going to need, you know, ten thousand for IVF or ten thousand to try and buy um, embryos from. You know, Spain, or you know, to to do all these things, and it costs a fortune, mm. and it's something like eighty seven percent. Oh, actually, it might not be that high. I can't quite remember. But it's a huge percentage of people who've got themselves into serious debt, trying to raise funds to have, you know, private IVF and mm. well, all the different things that, that mm. you need.
0: So it's it's important for healthcare professionals to ensure that we have an understanding of these. Yeah, all, all these different aspects, yeah, the complexity of all these different aspects before. Because <laughs> the, the, the think the thing is, and we're all guilty of it, sometimes we can uh, make assumptions um, very quickly w- without thinking, which is, it's, I think is a, a, a natural human trait that we, we do all do. We all have our opinions, like we said before, we all have our own inbuilt biases about it. From what I'm hearing, I come from a place of being curious because you don't know where it is. Um, yeah, uh, rather than making assumptions of uh, what women who don't have children are, are going to be like like you mm-hmm. said the, um, and especially if they're experiencing some form of mental illness, that's going to be even more difficult for, for them to manage those kind of conversations just like you described with your with the, with the counselor so it's just being a bit mindful of that aspect of engaging with someone who might not be able to have children yeah. right so one of the things that we, conversations that we were having before we started recording was about you know as occupational therapist when we meet people in general um and we, we're working with them in different settings either in the community or in in hospital or settings of any kind is we would like to do groups and we like to yeah. social, we talk about social connectedness and and you know building relationships and that's all very relevant it's very important um, at the same time but when you're experiencing depression or low mood or any any of the any other mental illness or mental health difficulties when you you know have not been able to have a child is social connectedness something that you need or is it is it something else or what, what what can we do if we come across situations like that
1: it's when I did my research it was interesting how many people because they were so isolated from child centric communities or when they went they were judged or you know felt excluded even when they were in social circumstances and so many people isolated themselves and i experienced that that actually i stopped wanting to see people when it was painful because people you know it just there's constant reminders facebook is just full of people and their kids and it's it's you're very much looking through a window at other people so people you know like when my stepsister had a baby they didn't tell me early enough and they made a facebook group um and and they didn't really connect it so you end up kind of taking yourself away to kind of shield yourself from other people kind of putting the triggers you you know these emotive triggers um with you and when you're kind of in that kind of self-preservation state it reminds me of polyvagal theory you know and you talked about co-connection you try and connect with people and you try and share this hurt and this loss and you get platitudes and you get told to relax and have you tried you know maca powder and you know don't wear tight trousers and all this sort of thing and actually you try to connect for a period of time and then you end up trying to self-regulate and then the extra hurts come in with rejections and you know losses and um not achieving the the, you know kind of standard life goals that most people want and then you get to a point where you just need well I my experience is if the person still does not get social support and regulation from somebody else they shut down and they do it that they need to recover and I certainly found that and if I'd been put by an OT in a group with lots of other mothers chatting about their children and particularly commenting about how difficult their children were I'd found that even more painful mm-hmm. you know and it's interesting that I think it's interesting that this is really common amongst amid, this kind of population but when I look back at my practice and some of my clients were you know in such alien environments and, you know, this was the worst part of their life and the OT kind of jollied along and said, you know, come on into this group or come on into that group. And, and it's, a, it's this thing of, is somebody lonely or do they need, need friendship? Are you really creating ongoing friendships for this person for the rest of their life? Possibly not, because actually what, what we tend to do is we're asking people to perform well socially when they're really quite unwell with other people who are really quite unwell. And actually what the research shows is we need quality, smaller connections, not vast amounts of people in our lives who we don't know. And, you know, there seems to be, you know, loneliness is a very difficult thing, but you can be lonely in a crowd. Mm. And actually, we need solitude sometimes to redesign our life, to ask big questions, to self-regulate. And you know, I had two periods off of depression, both them about two months long. Um, and I just needed, well, I, I, I spent days in bed, and my partner would say, you know, shower today. <laughs> and they kind of tend to do, hope, sh- shower, shower. Hmm? You know, my hair's just like <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> And I just needed to lie there and process the grief properly, because I think a lot of the time we don't let people process grief. We try to jolly them through. But actually, if something's really huge and life-changing that you, you need time to process what you really want. You know, when I think about models of practice and things, you know, I think about C M O P and you choose a couple of things to work on. And then when you've been able to imagine your life in a slightly different way, you look at a couple of more things. There's, there's a type of therapy, Morita, Morita therapy, in Japan, which I find very interesting, that basically um, they call it occupational therapy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's from the end of the 18th century. And it was a Zen Buddhist monk who um, basically invented it. And he basically would have people come into a retreat and they would stay with their own thoughts for three or four days, not interact, not do anything. Um, They'd have one person they would communicate with, um, but limited communication. And they just sat with the feelings. And they experience them and they, they observe them like you do the wed- weather, you know, very mindful, you know, actually not even naming feelings, just being aware that there's sensations. And after a couple of days, they then go and engage in occupational therapy. So tasks and they complete tasks and they only talk about tasks. And then a couple of days later, they go and do more heavy duty tasks like being out in woodlands and cut things down. And then they can start to talk with other people about the tasks only that they're completing. And only after that, for a couple of days, only after that, they then go to actually, let's look at life design. And they let them go through the whole process. And I've realised actually that's what we kind of naturally do. When you get really depressed, you haven't been able to self-regulate, you haven't been able to co-regulate, so actually, you need to really kind of try and understand, which if you're processing something really big, in kind of my experience and my opinion, you know, you have that complete shutdown, as they say in polyvagal theory. Yeah. You know, you you, you regenerate, you, you build skills and you build strengths and you think about the way out and how life could be different. But I think you kind of need that time. There's a lot of kind of opinion on people... Having solitary experiences as being quite selfish and narcissistic and and things like that, but actually, what we're doing is in in the UK and kind of westernised, you know, environments, is is we're training people to be pseudo extroverts. Fifty percent of us are introverts, fifty percent of us are extroverts. So if you've got somebody who's in the worst place ever and they're an introvert and we put them into a social group. And tell them to perform and also we do things like social skills training you you know it's like what skills are we training them to do oh you're training them to be an extrovert so we're not going to respect the fact they're an introvert (laughs) we're going to train them to be the same as everyone else you know what about neurodiversity what about you, you know actually advocating for introverts it's a yeah. it's
0: a massive area. You, you give you give a massive area of, of thoughts actually. When you think about oh, a lot of the work we do, we you know we occupational we, therapists, we love group work, um, you know, uh, and advocating for one to one work, which is which is we advocate for that as well. But when someone's in a specific position and they have a r- real difficulties interacting with people, or they they you know they can't process their feelings that well, but actually. Mm-hmm not forcing you know not forcing them but really pushing them to uh join a group that's probably not going to work for that person from what i'm hearing from what you what, what you're talking about it's actually I... allowing them to process the feelings that they, yeah. they're sitting there. It's that buzzword it was... of everyone trauma informed practice or you know <laughs> actually allowing that advocating for that and, and you know clinical reasoning why you believe yeah. that the person needs this period of time like all the things that you've talked about
1: I think it's it's you you're absolutely spot on with the kind of clinical reasoning. It's not making assumptions and not kind of this one size fits all and not just looking at somebody and said Oh, look, they're isolated. I know, let's put them all in a group. It, it's this kind of let's actually think about this. Why are they doing this? W- what is the reason for, for that behavior? Because everyone does behaviour because it it has some value. And I think we're very fearful of, we we label our feelings so much. And you know, in other cultures, they don't always label their feelings. You, you know, we're a very individualistic society, and we're trying to make people in, you know, independent with an inch of their lives, but at the same time saying, "Connect, connect, connect, connect." and and I find it really interesting that the research in you you know kind of America and in the UK is showing that people have far less best friends than they've ever had there's less civic engagement we're more connected than we've ever been you know and I'm on social media you know that's how we met but I've got over a thousand twitter followers and you know that all these shallow connections are not really deep connections and um, we know the neocortex, our brain, you know, the, the newest layer of our brain as we developed is, is, a, is basically around, I think it's a huge majority of it. It's only really the medial prefrontal cortex that kind of runs along like a Mohican in the middle, which is about self-awareness, that the rest of it is about how do you fit in socially. But actually, when you've had a trauma, it makes you even more aware of how you fit in socially. And you're not really thinking about yourself. So I think also sometimes people need to have opportunities to focus on themselves, focus on on, on, on what their needs are, focus on where they're going forward and, and just kind of balance it. I just I just don't think we can assume that that's my issue. I think we we just kind of assume that connecting people will be marvelous and we'll train them all how to talk. And it's kind of like at that point you're just you're, yeah. you're not the person you you were yeah. and and you're developing into a, a, a new version of yourself
0: I can imagine being thinking pragmatically and yeah, all that kind of stuff and when you're in practice and you are there's pressures to you know, you know put on a new groove and there's pressures to get people involved there's pressures to get people doing you know we put a lot of pressure yeah. on ourselves as occupational therapists to to do stuff and to get people doing that actually you might lose some of the real co-regulation skills that you could have as a as a, on a one-to-one basis of that person and allowing them to process some of the uh, trauma um, they experienced or some of the different mental difficulties they're experiencing that everything else overshadows that and you just run with group 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 let's get everyone in the group let's do what you believe to be nice things <laughs> yeah. um but sometimes like you said mentioned before you can be very lonely in the crowd you can be very lonely in the crowd and actually you you may not have the ability to learn some of the skills that the group is really good for in yeah. that moment in that moment you just need time out from everything else um but maybe as occupational therapists we put pressure on ourselves to get things done but <laughs> sometimes it doesn't need to be done right right then um <laughs> it's really interesting
1: but also with humor therapy i've had the best results i've ever had with anyone with humor therapy and that's humor therapy group work so you know that can work incredibly well but again i think it's just getting people at the right time not making assumptions and and you know we we need friends but we need quality friendships And we also need quality time out. I think that's the kind of thing it's, you know, we talk about balance and it's and oh my goodness. I'm going to take you down the route of timelines now. Sorry. (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) But, you you know, actually, when you're working with people, they have a different timeline to ours. And it's again, it's trying to see through the perspective of that person's eyes. You know, we we talk about it, but actually, how do you do it? Because you need to get in the person's um, kind of viewpoint to understand what their timeline is. And that's one thing that struck me working with kind of homeless people and, and kind of palliative care that actually a completely different timeline. That actually their timeline is the here and now, the next week, maybe, you know, two months time or the next event, Christmas or what have you. And for for somebody not being able to have children, it's very much next period, (laughs) you know. So I would plan my life period by period. I wouldn't want to do certain things. I'd be concerned about speaking events because, you know, I didn't want to do something stressful if I happened to get pregnant or, you know, those sorts of things. Um, But understanding people's timelines is kind of really important as well to understanding their concept of time and and being able to work alongside people and yeah
0: no that's just that's you know it does make sense because i i remember think reading something about the use of time and not in not in the context that we've been having the conversation today but just use of time in general um in a in a young offenders institute because we talk about time time is a very it it can be a very precious thing (laughs) for 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 a lot of people um and just like you just mentioned before you were living um period to period that's that's your because you don't want anything to has any impact on that time that you've got (laughs) to to become pregnant um or or not so the use of time is very very important i don't when you speak to someone i think it's very useful to understand the person's use of time like we, we you know we always yeah. we, we have conversations about how do you how do you spend your time but actually look at the bigger picture of time yeah. <laughs> and What's what would you, of time you? What, what, yeah where's what the concept yeah. of time to you and how and, and then when you understand that concept then how do you you then in turn um, make it meaningful to you what do you do to make yeah. it meaningful to you because like I'm I don't know if I'm wrong but when you're talking about period to period you not you don't want to do certain things because because be, be, hopefully becoming pregnant is very meaningful to you yeah. so you avoid people yeah people yeah so you you you, you adjust your time and routines to make sure that you can achieve Whatever you want to achieve and it's very important. And you're effort. in that
1: point of hope as well. So, you know, it's suddenly, uh, you know, you won't eat prawns or you won't eat brie or because you just get so obsessed by it, it just becomes a huge thing. Mm. But, you know, this kind of concept of time with life balance, how do you understand life balance if you don't understand somebody's concept of time? Mm. So what we tend to do in the UK is think about life balance with how much can I cope with in this day? How can I cope with it how much in this week? But actually it's, it's more than that because I can cope with something really heavy for a week, but can I do it for two weeks? Can I do it for three weeks? Can I do it for four weeks? Can I do it for five weeks? Mm. You know, so this concept of time, if you don't understand time, how can you understand balanced use of time?
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's given me some, a lot to think about. And hopefully everyone listening has, um, has got something from this conversation because I think you've really expressed the way involuntary childlessness um, can feel. Um, mm-hmm. And and how it's perceived, and how maybe occupational therapists come al- across women experiencing this, may be able to uh, not assume but help. The person process it and is either in a, a solitude or if the person prefers to be in a social connectedness. Out, uh, it's, it's one of it's, it's all up to the person, isn't it? So yeah. honestly, thank you very much for your time, and I hope to get you back on to talk about humor. I think that will be just to see how people can <laughs> use in the, the the other side of the coin because uh, you know it's, it's a serious conversation, and let's add <laughs> humor. No, it'll be really good to learn about how we can all use humor in our. our work as well so thank you very much for your time thank
1: you very much for having me you've been a delight
0: (laughs) thank you alice for sharing such a personal viewpoint of your experiences of your voluntary childlessness and giving us the you know insightful viewpoint of the impact it can have on identity so thank you again i hope you guys enjoyed it and until next time stay safe